Hey everybody, I'm Doug, that's Connor, and welcome to the Bethel School District Presents podcast. Connor, we are going to play a little game to start this week's show. I'm going to give you a million dollars. Wait, you're giving me a million dollars? No, 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 sorry. This is hypothetical. No, 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 you said you're giving me a million dollars. I think you have to give me a million dollars, don't you? No, this is, it's a game. It's a thought experiment. Ah, like Brewster's Millions. Maybe? I wasn't allowed to watch that when I was growing up. Oh, it's an 80s classic. Candy, prior, can't beat it. Okay, I'll stop by Blockbuster on the way home. Anyway, back on topic. If you had a million dollars to spend and you had to spend it in one day, how would you spend it? Now keep in mind, whatever you don't spend by the end of the day goes to your mortal enemy. Oh, so you'd get it. That's right. Easy. Buy a house. Okay, so the aim here is to have a fun conversation, Connor, not to be a basic broadcaster you also can't invest it so no houses no investing okay well what if i go to costco i buy a million dollars in hot dogs and that's an investment it's just an investment in my future happiness well that would be a choice but i'm still gonna say no just because i'm concerned about your health connor (laughs) okay let me see here well i guess that could go a couple of ways if superintendent siegel's listening hi tom I would donate the million dollars to our district. If he's not listening, I'd rent a hot air balloon, spend the rest of the million on glitter, and dump it over a major city. That would make you a very sparkly supervillain. I like it. That's a great use of the money. Speaking of money, today we're talking with our chief financial officer, one Mr. Brian Verley. Brian, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited. I am too. In fact, I've been preparing all morning for this interview. I've done tons of research, made multiple charts and graphs. I even brushed up on my multivariable calculus and a little bit of matrix algebra just for fun. And Connor, well, Connor just finished a bowl of Lucky Charms, so I think we're both prepared for this. Absolutely. A full tummy. And with that said, before we get started, I do want to preface our conversation by saying we're going to have some fun today. And we're going to be a little silly at times, but for the record, Brian, your job is incredibly important and you and we take it very seriously. You're in charge of millions of taxpayer dollars and we want to thank our voters and local taxpayers for entrusting us with their money so that we can make sure the students in our community get the best quality education they can possibly have. That's right. My team works very hard every day. We do like to have some fun on occasion, but we do take our jobs very seriously. And we do, again, thank the taxpayers, and we're doing it all for the students and the future of the community. Indeed. And to get us started, as we all know, the biggest percentage of a school district's budget goes to paying salaries for our teachers, bus drivers, paraeducators, child nutrition workers, maintenance personnel, administrators, custodians. It takes a lot of people. In fact, Bethel is the ninth largest employer in Pierce County. And part of what your team does is make sure everybody gets paid on time. That's absolutely true. And in fact, I've heard it said that everybody says they're bad at math until they're paychecks just a little bit off. Then all of a sudden they have a doctorate in calculus. Brian, what are some of the most frequent questions you get from staff about payroll? We do have a new employee orientation that does a great job of going over payroll, how it's calculated. However, that's like drinking from a fire hose for a new employee. They're thinking about a million other things. So some of the big questions, well, maybe not big, but the coming up often is, how am I getting paid during the summertime when I'm not working? Another one, what is FICA? (laughs) Some are have to do with what's the difference between a deduction and a benefit? Um, Those are some of the common ones. I do want to spend a minute because the biggest question again is, I work this many hours a month. Why am I not getting paid for that many hours at the end of the month? Because your annual salary is calculated by looking at how many days you work a year, how much you make per hour, 
and finding the number of hours per year, multiplying that by your pay rate, and then dividing that by 12. So you get an even check every month for your position pay on the classified side. Certificated side, it's an annual salary, so it's your annual salary, a salaried employee divided by 12. But then overtime hours are different. Then if you change positions, it gets complicated. I could go on, but there's many questions. Payroll does a great staff, and we do pay over 2,700 employees a month, and there's five payroll specialists who do that. So keep that in mind. We do have a some support team for them, but it's those five people paying 2,700 employees per month. And we here in communications, we actually work right next door to the payroll team. They're amazing people, always open to answering questions and doing a lot of work over there. It's a heavy lift. Now, I know for a fact on the first day of school, Brian, this year, you were actually out at schools. You weren't there to teach kids accounting, but just to help out on the first day as needed. What was that like for you? And is that something you get to do very often? I enjoy that. Um, this is actually my third district and the other two are smaller. One is about half the size of this and one was even smaller than that. In those districts, I actually got to see the students more. The district office was right next to the high school in my most recent district. And so you got some more involvement here, not so much. And it's a bigger district, there's more levels remove you. I do enjoy that. And remember, we're doing everything we do is for the students and for their learning, for their development. So I like getting out there and talking to kids and and just seeing what's going on. One of the schools I went to, it was neat. I got to help the kids on the first day of class find their classroom. I got handed a sheet of paper that had all the student names and all the classrooms and a map of the school. So that was kind of my highlight of the year so far. The most overqualified hall monitor in our district. (laughs) But let's get back to some budget talk if we can. Uh, Brian, what's the most common misconception people have when they talk about school district budgets? Well, there's multiple misconceptions with budgets. I think A few I'll talk about. I can't just answer that with one. One of the most common misconceptions is that budgets are fixed. They think that's what's submitted to the state is how you're going to spend all your money and how you're going to receive all your money. Well, think about this. Do you know what the cost of fuel is going to be next year? Do you know how many miles our buses are going to drive? Do you know what food's going to cost next year? Do you know what parts of buildings are going to need repair? Do you know of a broiler? that's gonna go out. There's so many variables. We look at trends over multiple years to make the budget, but again, it's not a fixed thing. It's it's variable and they're guidelines and it's a projection in time. That is a big one people don't realize. I don't know what the price of gas is gonna be tomorrow, let alone next year. So that's gotta be a big thing for you all to forecast. Not to mention, we don't know how many students we're gonna have on a given year and funding is based on the number of kids you have. Yes, funding is based on the number of students we have. And we actually report the number of students we have once a month. So in the budget, we're projecting how much we're gonna have for the year, but that changes on a monthly basis. And our apportionment or how much money the state gives us changes monthly as we the following month as we report the numbers for enrollment and then at the end of the year they average all the enrollment for all the months and they true us up to a number so even revenue our biggest portion of revenue is variable so with all that money coming in we can at least just spend it where we want to right well no that's not exactly correct either and in fact that's another misconception a lot of members of the public think that the revenue is interchangeable but the truth is we have both unrestricted and restricted revenue And the unrestricted revenue, which is about two-thirds of our revenue, can be spent on any allowable activity of the school district. So as long as it's allowable by law for a district spend it. So we could pay salaries, we could repair buildings, we could buy district buses. 
anything that's allowable, textbooks, but then we have unrestricted funds. And I like to compare these to like store gift cards. So if you have an Olive Garden gift card, great, you can buy food, but only certain types of food, prepared food at a restaurant, Subway's the same way. You got a Foot Locker card, you can buy shoes, but you can't pay your mortgage or rent with that, and you can't repair your vehicle with that. Restricted funds are like that, and that's about one third of the total revenue we get. And a subset of that are grants. Grants are where you have to spend the money first and you get reimbursed for the expenditure, and there's actually more strings attached with those. And they range from the smallest, about $350, to the larger ones, about $4.1 million for Title I. We have over 70 individual grants we have to manage annually. Okay, that is a lot of information to take in. I'm thinking my charts and graphs now are probably 90% wrong, so I'm going to discard those. It seems like every time we've talked to you in the past year, years since you've been here, we've talked about regionalization. And that is a big change that's happened this past legislative session and went into effect this year. Bethel now gets 6% regionalization, which helps. But it doesn't fix the problem because there's a bigger problem than just that. Well, that is correct. In the state of Washington, we have a somewhat regressive allocation that's calculated by the state for how much individual districts get. Where some states, they have a progressive model where districts in the poor areas of their state get more state funding to compensate for social economic differences between districts. In Washington, we get mostly flat funded. That's kind of the goal of the legislature overall. But they do have regionalization, which is part of the prototypical formula so to figure out how much money goes to individual districts, which means those districts that on average have wealthier households are getting more money. I thought the motivation behind that was uh, kind of staff-based. So the staff that have to live in those areas to work in those areas would need to be paid more so they can afford those areas. It's, is that the mindset that they had going into this? But it's creating a different problem. Yes, that is the mindset, and that is logical. However, when you look at nationwide studies that are done by experts in the education field, the number one predictor of student outcome is actually social economic background of the student. So those students that come from poor areas all across the country and the state of Washington perform lower and those that come from more wealthy areas perform better. So if you wanna bring up those poor performing students, you need to put more resources there and we're actually doing the opposite. We're putting more, more dollars in those wealthy communities. On top of that, in the state of Washington, a sizable chunk of money from 10 to 20% per district comes from the local levy. Well, those areas that have higher property values have the ability to collect more money, both per student and actual dollars from those local levies. So it's another thing in Washington that makes funding actually regressive and not progressive. That's really fascinating. Uh, you did mention levies, so let's talk a little bit more about that. So when we're looking at our general fund, where most things are paid out, 73.5% of the budget is coming from the state. 12.1% from our local levies, and 14.1% from the federal government. With that said, thank you voters and to our taxpayers. We couldn't do this without you. Everything added up, that's about $354 million. Percentage-wise, where does that all go? Like we talked about before, most of it goes to salaries and benefits of employees. Varies per year, but somewhere between 83 and 86%. Less than 5% goes to supplies and materials. We have about 12% that go to purchase services, and that's all of our utility bills, but it's also 
areas where we can't hire expertise so when we have to hire a law firm and sometimes in the special education arena we're unable to hire certain personnel so we contract out for those services and then less than one percent for capital outlay and travel that's one way of looking at where that money goes another way of looking where the same dollars goes is to break it by kind of activity so what is being done as a whole both with the people in that area and the supplies and purchase services you need to spend in that area. And if you look from that way, instruction is about 75% of where the money goes. About 2.5% goes to district-wide administration, about 3% to food services, another 5% to instructional support. So that's like training the teachers how to teach and then the technology that supports them. Uh, Maintenance and operations, because we have over 30 school buildings and some support buildings will go to maintenance and operation support of those buildings. Those are the big areas. People transportation, maybe about 5%. So I noticed in that you haven't mentioned any type of new school construction or, or anything like that. So is that bond budget kept completely separate from our regular budget? That is. Um, I don't want to get into the details of governmental accounting, but there's generally accepted accounting principles and the Government Accounting Standards Board sets those principles on how we do that. And then the state legislature of Washington also puts some rules on top of that. But school construction is not the general activity of school districts. So we do that in a totally different fund. We call it our capital projects fund. We keep both the revenue for that and the expenditures separate from the general fund. So when we sell bonds, when the voters approve bonds and we sell them, the revenue goes directly in the capital projects fund. We also pay for our tech levy out of the capital projects fund because the state legislature has guided us to set it up that way. Well, Brian, that has been a lot of numbers and percentages in a very short period of time. Let's give everybody's brains a break for just a second. What got you into the financial world in the first place? Were you always drawn to the mathematical arts? I don't know if I was drawn to them. I think we all have strengths and weaknesses. It's kind of an aptitude growing up. Math always came easy to me. No one, I think, dreams of being a uh, chief financial officer for a school district or chief business officer or anything like that. It just life happens and you end up there. When I was young, I wanted to be at one point a firefighter. I don't know if you remember back in the 70s, probably when I was five or six, my favorite TV show was Emergency and wanted that. Then a um, professional football player. I used to run, you know, with my best friend who lived a few houses down the street routes and I pretend like I was like, Johnny Jefferson or Steve Largent running routes and catching. But then my high school, I did play football. I tore my ACL. So the odds were against I'd never make football. The odds are just against everybody. But I had no chance with that. The other thing I wanted to do is become a commercial pilot. But my poor vision, uncorrected vision, didn't allow me to join the Air Force or any military forces, which where you can really learn to become a pilot at a, you know, where the government pays for it. Otherwise, it's really cost prohibitive. During college, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted my major to be. My strengths were math, but that was not really my interest. My interests were more the sciences. And part of me thought, well, maybe thinking about becoming a doctor, thinking about becoming a physician's assistant, thinking about a physical therapist, something in those areas, which, you know, have good job opportunities. A lot of schooling, well, in those number of years, um, I took a emergency medical technician class and I started to work on a local rescue ambulance, and I ended up staying there way longer than I had planned. I ended up working there for 16 years. There were some mergers and acquisitions, and the company changed. But I had never finished my college degree 
immediately after high school. But about yeah, seven or eight years into working on a rescue ambulance, I figured, well, I need to go back to school and finish my degree. But my initial degree was going to be in biochemistry. And I kind of, after years in this, I decided, no, that I need to figure out what I really want to do if I'm not going to work on the ambulance. A lot of people, they end up going to the fire services, like I did think about that, but I decided that's not the route I really wanted to go. And so I looked at the federal government does a national occupation outlook guide. And where can you make the most money with the most job openings with a bachelor's degree? The first three things were three different types of engineers. And I was like, I took through Calculus 3. I don't really want to take differential equations, and that's not really my interest. Number four was accounting. I go, huh, that doesn't seem that hard. Over the years, I had an interest in watching markets and how the economy works and everything else. And so I went back to school while I was working full time, um, two days a week, to get an accounting degree. Technically, it's a degree in administration with a concentration in accounting. And I got two other concentrations to finance, which I actually find a little bit more interesting than accounting, but they go together and then real estate as the concentrations go with it. My favorite classes in that world were actually economics. You had to take a number of economics courses in that arena too. And I won't get into all the details how I actually ended up in the school district, but it started with the accounting degree. Wow, that is an incredible background. Really interesting to hear about. I'm wondering if you have a PG to PG-13 ambulance story you can share with us. Well, at the time, I was working in California, and the ambulance service provided services in Ventura and the very west end of Los Angeles County. And I had a number of celebrities, I can't mention their names, that we provided services for that were in the ambulance for different reasons, including overdoses. Wow, that is quite the revelation. I'm really glad I asked that question. The seedy side of Hollywood. Connor, that was my last question. Do you have any left? Of course, and I've put them all together in a little segment I like to call the lightning round. Brian, are you ready? I'm ready. What is your ideal temperature outside? 72. What's your favorite movie about accounting or math or anything with numbers? The Accountant. What's your favorite comfort food? Pizza. Is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? No. What was your first job? <laughs> I worked at uh, Six Flags Magic Mountain in an amusement park and I worked in the games area. Dogs or cats? I have both and I actually am not gonna make that decision because someone will be unloved. <laughs> What's the place you most wanna travel to? Italy. Have you ever ridden a Segway? No, I have not. Um, I've ridden those hoverboards and almost killed myself, so I don't know if it would be close, but a hover, uh, Segway is supposed to be way easier. Would you rather come face to face with a miniature hippopotamus or a giant cockroach? A giant cockroach. I know I could kill it even though it's a giant cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the end of the lightning round. You did very well, Brian. I'm going to give you 10 points. I think there were only nine questions. Okay, then let's add a 10th question and circle back around to the top of the show with our Brewster's Millions question. Brian, if you had a million bucks to spend today and you had to spend it by the end of the day or your mortal enemy got the money, how would you spend that money? A broadly diversified mutual fund, then I could live off the earnings off that, or is it grows in value, I can take that out. <laughs> That's the kind of wise business decision you can expect from a school district CFO. Brian, thanks for joining us today, and thank you so much for the work that your team does. We loved having you on the show. Thank you very much. It was enjoyable. 
And that's going to wrap up this week's show. Connor, we started the show talking about a million dollars. If you had it in your pocket, what would you spend it on? You never got around to asking me what I would spend it on. Don't you want to know? No. Well, that's too bad. I'm going to tell you anyway. I would rent the services of one Mr. Gerald Seinfeld. Jerry, as I like to call him, because we're, we're cool like that. I'd have him come out, drive me around in a fancy car, and we'd just chat and probably have somebody film us. Oh, kind of like comedians in cars getting coffee. Exactly, except it'd be podcasters in a pinto getting pancetta. I like the sound of that. And now I'm hungry. Well, there's a I hop right down the street. Let's go there now. Deuces. Deuces. <laughs>